I'm Rick Donlin. Thank you for coming. Uh, I want to introduce first my co-presenter. This is Nathan Cook, and Nathan's not on the program, but he's going to be the best part of the program. Um, welcome. Somebody wants to know what the 240 window is, and there are about 20 people here from Memphis who will tell you. We have a loop around our city, just like there's a 440 around Louisville. There's a 240 around Memphis. And I came up with the title because the one I'd been using the three previous years was stale. We used to call it from the hood to the Hindu Kush. But they said you couldn't use that title anymore. So this is our lamer version. It's the same point, and I want to tell you the end before we do the beginning. What we want to persuade you in this hour is that there is no better way to get ready to do international medical missions, development missions in the most difficult places in the world. There's no better way to get ready for that than to work in an urban setting, a cross-cultural urban setting in the United States. And that really, these are two sides of the same coin. So I've been working in the inner city as a physician for 15 years now, living in an inner city community we're going to show you for about six or seven years. And when I come to a conference like this, sometimes people approach me and say, hey, man, America's reached. What are you doing? There are unreached people groups on the other side of the world. You're out of your mind. Right? And then in May, I'll go to a conference of people who are really passionate about the, of transforming urban communities. And they're like, what the? Why are you going to Afghanistan? What about inner city Memphis? And what I try to persuade both groups is that these are really these are the same things. Right? This is about making God look great and expanding the kingdom of God around us. And if you want to do one, the other is good preparation. And today, since we're at the international arena, we're going to try to persuade you that if you want to be effective overseas, you might start by trying to be effective in the inner cities of the United States. So that's, that's the stick. And we live in this little river town here, um, Memphis, Tennessee. And it's a difficult city. The, probably the fundamental thing that has altered the history of our city more than anything else is that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in um, April of 1968. I was four years old. Many of you in the room don't remember it. But there were riots that erupted that night, not only in Memphis, but across the country. And it still deeply divides our city. Our city is a two-race town, and it is um, more than any city I've, I've lived in New Orleans and some other places racially divided. It's a difficult place in a lot of respects. This is myself on the left and three of my medical school classmates. I'm going to tell you my story, and then Nathan's going to tell you his. Um, Nathan's a pastor and a church planter. But we met in the CMDA group way back when in New Orleans. Um, we had this amazing hospital that was built by Huey Long, this crooked governor in the 1920s, sort of a Batman-looking thing, and it was an amazing place to learn medicine. The call rooms were at the top of the building. The ghosts of the many dead patients crept around the place. Uh, it was an era where attending physicians went home at about 3 o'clock, and the residents and the students ran the place, so... Might not have been the greatest patient care, but it was a great place to learn medicine. Um, we began then, as 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds, to do something that seemed really scary to us at the time. It's laughable to me now. But we would do a little hour-and-a-half Bible club in the Fisher Housing Projects in New Orleans. We would all meet at our little Bible church. You know, New Orleans is a big Catholic town, so there's like two Bible churches. And we'd meet at the Bible church, and we'd caravan into the projects. You know, we'd all... Is anybody getting shot? Anybody dying? We're going to run in and share the gospel with some kids who will listen to us and run out. And we thought it was the most risky thing in the world. It was a little step of faith, a little bit of obedience early on. Jump starting, or jumping far ahead to 1995, after a lot of difficulty, 
We opened a little health center in Memphis, and it was in this shopping center that's well-known in our community. On the right, you can't see, is a skating rink that sells alcoholic beverages. So there was orthopedic business right away for us when we got over there. (laughs) Biggest food stamp office in our county is on the left. And we had, um, this was our whole crew in 1995. And this is the day we got our sign. And I was so proud. I can't tell you how proud I was. Um, And it's grown a great deal. We got a new logo. And um, we're constantly trying to catch up with this other health center in Chicago. I'm not going to mention it by name. All right, and so to show you some pictures, I've got like a three-minute video I want to show you, and it's going to show you our health centers, and it's going to show you the people that we sent overseas. So you'll see some pictures of pharmacies and medicine clinics and dental clinics. You'll see my kids and other people's kids and the neighborhoods that we work in and Afghanistan and India. Um, what else? Our house churches. And it's all mixed up, and that's the point of this talk. All those things go together, and all this is sort of pictures worth more than a thousand words. So let me see if I can get this going for you. Should only take about ten minutes. (laughs) United Nations meeting on my porch. Pick out my kid. <laughs> and pick out my kid. <laughs> Church. Refugee family being resettled. Afghanistan. Ditto. Smart doctor. Smarter doctor. Smarter doctor. That's Tough guys in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. My neighbors around the corner. Medical students with kids in the neighborhood. Worst baseball team ever. (laughs) Pick out my kid. (laughs) Bet you can't pick up my kid in that one. (laughs) First girl of mine. India. Yeah, putting a cast on a guy. Okay, I'm sorry, I was supposed to have music. The best laid plans. So in the year 2000, we'd had our health center open. Uh, We actually opened a second one. We'd been going for five years, and I was very frustrated because I'm an idiot. I was um, just your run-of-the-line, middle, upper-middle-class evangelical. They won't be able to hear you. I don't know if y'all in the back could see Rick, but I was sitting in the front, and uh, he's sweating like crazy, and I didn't want to put that headphone on my head after that. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I want to talk to you about uh, a couple of, may, maybe the tone will get uh, a little serious now. Uh, 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 there are some real hardships that all of us have encountered, both 
for those um, who've gone overseas and and for those who have been working um, in the inner city. And and it's it can be really difficult at times. Um, when my wife and I first moved into Binghampton, uh, we were we were really pioneering the work. Um, we were we were uh, only the second white couple. Uh, white family to, to move into the neighborhood where we were living, and the other lady um, that lived actually she lived next door to us uh, was schizophrenic, and um, and uh, so there were some some issues that we had to overcome with that. Uh, there were um, Kim and I were really fearful uh, for for really the first year that we were in the neighborhood, um, so much so that. Um, that I, I didn't feel comfortable uh, really for Kim. Ever. We both worked at the time. I didn't feel comfortable with her really being at the, the house without me um, ever. You know? And so uh, that meant at nighttime when we were back from work, either um, if I had an appointment in the evening, either she would come with me or, um, uh, well, there's no or. She used to come with me. And it was, uh, and, and we are both fiercely independent people. Um, and so there is, a, there is a great loss of freedom. Um, it, it was a huge burden um, on our relationship. Uh, we were newly married. Um, we had spent a little, we, we spent six months um, before moving into this neighborhood. We had spent six months being married in, in a nice kind of suburban community. Um, and it was, it was a shock to us and it was, it was difficult. And um, there were many um, days that we felt like we didn't, we didn't want to be there. Um, and uh, slowly over time, uh, we began to adapt. We began to reach out to our neighbors. Our neighbors began to reach out to us. Um, God provided um, this wonderful woman uh, named Freddie May, who's uh, um, she was about 67 at the time, and she really became um, kind of a grandmother to us and uh, kind of adopted us into her family. And uh, I learned more from about being a pastor from Freddie May than I ever did in seminary just by, by watching the way um, that she would go into the community. And she would, uh, she's just really funny. She's the most energetic woman uh, you've ever met in your life. And uh, like she'll talk now, how, how old is she? I guess she's 75 now. Um, Kim's saying she's older than that. Uh, but but she'll, she uh, volunteered as a, a parole officer for 20 years. Um, she still goes and volunteers at, at, a neighbor, at the neighborhood school um, in our community and works with children. And then she does that in the morning, and then she'll walk down the street to the community center to feed the old people is what she says. For lunch, and then come home, and, and so she just she checks on people, she serves people, um, she served us, and we learned amazing things from 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 being there with her. We learned from our community, um, and it was really through Freddie May and her friendship and friendship with her her grandchildren um, that we started to feel accepted and welcomed into the community, um, and over time we really saw uh, transformation take place in our community. And, and we saw more people uh, move in. We started, started to see racial reconciliation happening. Um, we, we saw the drug dealers who were in our neighborhood uh, move out of the neighborhood. Um, 
we had some good conversations about the gospel with, with them as well um, and, and was hopeful to see them convert and come to know uh, Jesus. That, that didn't happen, but um, we, we were able to build relationships there. Um, and we really did see kind of our neighbor, this, this little small block group kind of transform. Um, and then, uh, so, so Kim and I, you know, we, we were praying and we felt like, okay, this... This work. This is what we. This is what we wanted to see, and, and we felt God kind of prompting us um, to, to move again, to move into just a couple uh, blocks down down the street into another part of the neighborhood that was a, a, um, a little a little rougher, and um, and uh, it's kind of been terrible again. Uh, we're having to go through all of these same things and, and, and going through the same fears and um, and. Uh, trying to get to know our, our neighbors again. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I guess a month ago um, or so, we, we were leaving to go to the Christian Community Development uh, Association meeting in, in Cincinnati. And, and that morning uh, that we were leaving, it's about 7.30 in the morning, and I hear boom, boom. It's like it's, we call it ghetto thunder, and it's coming down the road, and, and we're um, it's like 7:30 in the morning, and so uh, and I'm actually getting my daughter out of bed, and I, I kind of peek through the window, and I see a guy get out of his car, go up on the front porch. Uh, my neighbor Mario picks out a little plastic baggie, and he's unwinding it, and he's giving rocks and accepting green stuff, and putting it back in his mind, in his pocket, and, and he leaves, and then about. Five minutes, five minutes later, literally like five minutes later, there's a kid on his skateboard, skates up, he comes up, he sees Mario on the front porch, he does a little deal, he leaves, and I'm like, this is crazy. You know, it's, it's 7.30 in the morning, and I've witnessed in like 10 minutes two drug deals, and I have a two-year-old daughter whose uh, window faces this street, and, and I'm saying, why, you know, you're going through it all over again. God, why... Are we here? Why did you lead us to this? When we first went into the neighborhood, it was just Kim and I. Now we have two children, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, God, did we, did we hear you correctly? Are you really wanting to... Uh, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? I mean, are, are we putting our children at risk? Are we... Um, and, and these are the same... They're the same thoughts. They're the same fears. Um, that you're going to encounter when you go overseas, if you're going in, into the 1040 window. Look, the reason that, that, that unreached people are unreached is because these are not nice areas. They're, they're politically unstable. Um, there's tribal warfare. Um, there is spiritual oppression. Um, the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ is not penetrated into these areas. They're not nice areas. Your families are going to be at risk. Um, but, but one of the, the, the uh, and so you can't um, in these situations you can't rely on the wisdom of the world or um, you can't you can't rely on maybe things that you would uh, even maybe sometimes your own instincts. Um, you really have to rely upon um, scripture to guide you, and you have to rely upon the Word of God. And so I just I want to tell you. Um, some scriptures that have been important to me, that have been foundational uh, in my life and have helped to carry me through this uh, with the hope that, that, um, that they'll really help to shape our thinking about uh, inner city missions and world missions. And so the person that I come back to more than anybody else is, um, 
is the prophet Isaiah and the life, really the life of Isaiah, even more so than, than what he says of, of reading through the book of Isaiah and seeing the life that he lived. And so I want to, I want to share with you just kind of briefly a little bit about the prophet Isaiah, okay? Isaiah, when he was probably 16 years old, received his, his calling from God in that famous passage, Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, it begins with Isaiah seeing this beautiful, um, glorious revelation of, of God. Um, that he is, uh, in this vision, he's in God's throne room. And he sees uh, the robe of God, you know, that fills the temple. And, and there are angels and spiritual beings that are uh, flying around God. And they're singing to him and they're praising his name and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is struck by the holiness of God. He sees God for his sovereignty, for his beauty, for his glory. And he confesses, oh Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. He realizes his own sinfulness, his own fallenness before this holy God. And he confesses, he fears for his own life. And God in his grace reaches out to Isaiah. He sends an angel to, to grab um, a coal off of the altar that's in front of him. And he brings it and he touches it to Isaiah's lips uh, to cleanse him. It's a picture of his, of his cleansing and of the preparation and of, of the grace of God being extended to Isaiah. Um, and God says, um, whom shall I, who, who will go, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And you know what's fascinating when you really think about the story, what's fascinating, and the the point that I come back to over and over and over again is that in this calling, when God is calling out, uh, when he calls out, Isaiah responds not to a specific calling, not to a specific culture, not to a specific people group. Isaiah is not responding to his own giftedness. He's not... Um, he's, he's responding to the glory of God. He's responding to the sovereignty of God. He has realized that God is king and that he is his servant. God hasn't told Isaiah at this point what he's going to do. He hasn't given him his mission yet. Isaiah just says, here I am, Lord, send me. Whatever it is, wherever you're going to send me, whatever, whatever you want, Lord, here I am. Isaiah lays his life down and submits himself to God. And then God sticks him with one of the worst jobs in the history of Scripture. He says, Isaiah, this is what I want you to do. You're going to be a preacher. And you're going to preach to your kinsmen. You're going to preach to the Israelites. Um, But I'm going to harden their hearts, and I'm going to deafen their ears, and I'm going to blind their eyes, and they're not going to understand uh, what, what you say, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that for you, Isaiah. It's going to take care of you like that, right? <laughs> Isaiah, God tells Isaiah that you're basically, you're going to have a fruitless ministry in, in terms of what the world or the church might, might say is fruitful. There isn't going to be a great revival, Isaiah, when you preach. There aren't going to be people falling on their face and coming and, 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 and proclaiming my glory. You're going to preach to people who I'm going to deafen. 
It's a terrible job description. You know what Isaiah's response is? He says this, How long? How long, O Lord? How long must I do this? And then it gets even worse. God says, well, basically until I destroy the city, until I destroy the people, until, um, until 10% is left. Oh, no, what? No. Even when 10% is left, I'm going to send another army and I'm going to destroy that too. Until there's utter destruction. There's a little bit of hope at the end of the story. He says, until there's only a stump left and then that stump will become a seed that will grow again. But it's not very promising. That's what God is calling you to. <laughs> this stinks, all right? But this is what, seriously, like, if, if we're going to be serious about going to unreached people, your life is more than likely going to be spent in what the world is going to see as futility. You're, you're probably not going to see um, a lot of fruitfulness in your life. It's going to be generations. That you're going to be laying a foundation for the gospel. You're going to be sowing seeds of the gospel um, that that God will send servants in the future uh, to reap a harvest that you've planted. But you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready for that. And, and what that means is that you can't find your identity in your work. You can't find your identity in being a doctor or being a nurse. You can't find your identity in those things. You have to find your identity in being a servant of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And committing yourself to do whatever it is that God puts on your plate. Whatever it is. Maybe you've been trained as being a surgeon, but you're going to Afghanistan where you have uh, one of the highest rates of tuberculosis uh, in the world and you're really serving more as a, as a, master, uh, as a person who might have a, a master's in public health. You may be doing public health. And you may be saying to yourself... But the Lord gave me these hands to be a surgeon. He's blessed me with this gift. But that's not where he has you. And you can't find your identity in being a surgeon. You can't find your identity in being a doctor or a nurse. You have to find your identity in being a servant of the king. And when those times get hard like they are for, for, for Kim and I right now, that you can't look at your circumstances, you can't look at your surroundings that you have to refocus on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I go back to this passage, and I play it through in my mind over and over, and I put myself in Isaiah's position, and I just I fall before the King. And I recognize, Lord, I am sinful, and I am selfish, and my desires are selfish, and I confess that I am in need of your grace. Isaiah... Um, Isaiah's life doesn't get better from here. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 20, there's, a, this, there's this really weird passage that, that uh, I never noticed until I was in college. Um, but God tells Isaiah to do this incredibly bizarre thing. He, says, he tells Isaiah, he says, I want you to take off your sandals and all of your clothes. And then the next thing it says is that God says, My servant Isaiah has been wandering around naked and barefoot for three years as a picture of how I'm going to shame uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. That Isaiah is being a prophetic witness. Now, again, I try to put myself uh, into the life of Isaiah. And, and my first thought is, three years, really, God, does it take three years? I mean, you know, 
like three days, maybe they could get the point. You know, it's just a little picture. It's just a little prophetic image here. Three years, seriously. And I think, what if, what, what would my life look like if I was wandering? Okay, first, what kind of dynamic? How would that change the dynamic here? Like, really, would you be listening to me right now? And I think, well, what about you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. And, um, you know, I'm going to my parents' house and my in-laws. You know, we'll go to the in-laws. How, what's that going to look like when you sit down for Thanksgiving dinner naked? And so, um, <laughs> friends, you know, going to the Grizzlies game. Nobody's going to the Grizzlies game anymore. That's a bad example. But going to get, no, there's no, you know, it would, um, people would think I, I was crazy. And literally. And they would probably um, be very concerned and worried about me. Uh, and then I'm going to say, no, no, seriously, Mom, God told me to do this. It's okay. You know, no, you're going to, it really, I, I really do imagine that um, Isaiah lost all of his friends. His family relationships were broken. Uh, but he was faithful, wasn't he? He was faithful and obedient to the Word of God. He submitted to God. And this is, uh, Rick taught me this. This is, this is a good little definition of submission. Submission is only submission if you don't want to do it. Right? If, if you want to do it, it's not submission, it's cooperation. <laughs> submission is only submission if you don't want to do it. Right? And so, um, I can see that Isaiah twice now has submitted to God. He submitted to God in his calling to preach to a people that, that wouldn't hear him. He's, he's submitted to God to wander naked for three years. Um, and it's, it's not just submitting to God, it's not just doing what, what you don't want to do, but it's also trusting that God has a plan and a purpose beyond your understanding. And that you may never understand why God is asking you to do this, but, but that he, he is good, He is loving. Um, God was good and loving and kind to Isaiah when he told him to take off his clothes and, and wander and that may not make sense to us. But God's character didn't change. Um, he had a plan and a purpose maybe beyond what Isaiah could see or understand. Um, and our, our job is not to understand why or, just, or to demand, to raise our fists to God and say, God, you must, you, you've got to tell me. Or I'm not going to do this until I understand it. But it's simply to lay down our lives in submission to him and trust that, that he has a plan and a purpose. Um, this is the last part. I know that I'm getting, am I getting close. Um, five minutes, okay. We'll try to go through this quickly. Uh, at the end of Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, um, when, when Isaiah is, is, again, preaching to the Israelites, uh, and he's talking about worship and what is true worship, and, and he says, you know, worship is not um, making sacrifices. Uh, it's... But true worship is, um, is loving the poor and is breaking the yoke of injustice. And then this is what he says. It's, it's taking the homeless poor into your home and it's clothing the naked. And I imagine that when Isaiah spoke those words, he's speaking them with experiential authority. He's speaking them as a poor, homeless, naked man who is cut off from his own society. He's speaking to family and friends who maybe um, ignored him or called him crazy during those three years that he was wandering. And I think that we're supposed to take this literally. To welcome the homeless into our houses. 
That it's not just that we're to serve them from a distance, to go to a soup kitchen and serve them, but that we are to reestablish relationship with those that are poor. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, a couple friends of mine and I did this, and it wasn't by my, I mean, it was by the Lord's leading, obviously, but, you know, there was the Lord, then there was Billy, my roommate, and then Jeff, and then I was kind of the low man on the spiritual totem pole because I, I fought this uh, pretty much the whole time. But Billy, um, we, we lived in an inner city community, and uh, Billy had done a lot of outreach with uh, with the homeless, and Billy uh, comes home one day and he says, hey, uh, I met a guy named Scott, and um, I think that he should live with us for a little while so that he can kind of get back on his feet. Um, and Billy didn't tell us that, uh, that Scott was paranoid, schizophrenic, and suffered from OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, and he comes in, and so the first time I meet Scott, he's wearing this red bandana and a jean jacket and no shirt and a real hairy chest, and he's about this tall. And uh, we would have these great conversations about how he used to play for the Minnesota Stars and how he, um, all, all these amazing things that he'd done. And uh, at, at, in the morning when I would wake up, I'd go into the kitchen, and um, all of the, the furniture in the kitchen had been rearranged. And I'd go into the bathroom, and all of our dishes were in the bathtub. And there was no toilet paper left because he had unwound and used all of the toilet paper, not just in the bathroom, but the entire house. And uh, it was really, I mean, this was only a couple of weeks, and it was really, um, it was getting to me. And uh, and, and uh, he said the other thing that Scott said um, was he's like, you know, he's like, I wouldn't be in the situation if it wasn't for the man. I've got $10,000 in the bank and I just can't get to my money in the bank. And it, it, the man's trying to keep me down. He just, he won't let me have my money. And I'm like, Billy, this, we can't do this. Like, we can't do this. He, he needs, he needs professional help. He needs hospitaliz- hospitalization. He needs, some, he needs more than than what we can provide for him. Well, um, Billy, uh, Billy really had a heart and a compassion f- for Scott and, and, and for the homeless. And he, he took Scott at his word, whereas I thought he was you know, just crazy. And that's what I called him, Crazy Scott. Um, but but Billy, <laughs> Billy took him at his word, and, and he went with Scott to the bank to check out his story. And lo and behold, Scott did have $10,000 in the bank. Uh, that he, was, he had been receiving disability checks for years, but he didn't have a caretaker, and he didn't have anybody, because of his mental disorders, he didn't have anybody to sign off on those checks for him. And so Billy basically adopted him and took him in and became his caretaker and got access to that money and helped to get uh, Scott reestablished. And, um, and uh, Billy... Um, Billy had a level of trust that, that I didn't have. And I learned a lot from that situation. But what I learned most was that what we can do, we, can really, we really can take God at his word. And that that's what Billy did. That Billy didn't, Billy didn't put this off on an institution and say it's the institution's responsibility to treat Scott. He didn't say it, it's, it's, the doctor's, um, it's, it's the doctor's responsibility to treat and to fix Scott. What Billy said is, Scott is my brother, and I'm going to love him. And I'm going to establish a relationship with him. And that means uh, he's going to become a part of my family. And I let my family into my house. And I eat with my family. doesn't matter how crazy they are. And you're going to do that too. Thanksgiving's coming, right? We're going to eat with crazy family members. 
but but again, it, it came down to submission, right? Uh, it comes down to not not doing what, uh, not demanding, uh, making demands upon God to to do what. Uh, we think is right, or to think to, to tell God that these are our talents for God. This is what I'm passionate about. Find a place for me. But to lay down all of that stuff and to trust that, hey, God created me. He knows that. He knows what He's put into me. He's going to use me in the way that He sees fit. And ultimately, ultimately, it's going to be fulfilling. There may be a tremendous amount of suffering in the midst. But God has our best interest at heart, and, and more so, God has his own best interest at heart. And that he has put us here to bring glory to his name, to surrender our lives to him, to lay down our lives in faithful obedience. And what I hope that you get out of this is that um, this doesn't, it, it can start with small steps. You don't have to start by letting a homeless guy into your house. You don't, but but you've got to start. You've got to start taking the scriptures seriously. And you're going to hear preachers say you need to you need to pray and you need to read the scripture. You've got to be in the Word, and all of that's true. But if you're not doing the Word, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow in, in holiness. You're not going to grow in your understanding of who God is, and you're not going to progress in this Christian life. That our our spiritual progression only comes through obeying the Word of God. Jesus said that um, those who love me will, will obey my commands. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Let's, um, let's pray together. Jesus, we do love you. We do love you. That's why we're here. And Lord, um, I pray that you would... Uh, speak to us while we're here, Lord, that you would um, prepare us, that you would, uh, that your spirit would bring conviction uh, where we need conviction, that you would help us to um, lay down our lives before you, uh, Lord, that you would um, prepare us for greatness, prepare us for greatness in the kingdom, Lord, but, but realizing that greatness is not what the world says. It, it, it may not look like having a, a successful uh, medical practice, Lord, that um, success in your kingdom uh, may be uh, allowing the homeless to come and live with us. It may mean, um, Lord, uh, serving uh, in, in laying down our lives and, and sharing the gospel for a generation without seeing fruit, Lord. But, but Lord, in your kingdom, um, that might be success. Lord, help us to respond first and foremost to you. Lord, not, not to a people or a place, but to you. Lord, help us to see and to realize your holiness and your sovereignty and your love for us. Help us to trust you in laying down our lives for you so that you might be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.